Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The Aleutian Islands are some of the most obscure pieces of American territory. A smattering of small, desolate, rocky, windswept, rain-sodden islands that on a map look like tiny parts of Alaska are trying to escape into the North Pacific. When you think about these islands, how inconsequential they appear, it almost seems ridiculous that they would be considered American at all. The only people who live in the Aleutian Islands are the Aleuts, an indigenous peoples that have lived in the region for centuries. There's no industry, no significant resources, no all-inclusive resorts, no undiscovered white sand beaches, nothing really. Yet, in 1942, these islands became the only Japanese occupation of American territory in the entire war. While the Americans successfully pushed the Japanese off the small Aleutian island of Attu, a rather unique Canadian-American force was sent to liberate Kiska and remove the last of the Japanese from American soil. This is Season 5, Episode 6, Optical Aleutians, The Liberation of Kiska Island. Today we have two book recommendations. The first one, by Daniel Byers, is Zombie Army, the Canadian Army and Conscription in the Second World War. This was published by UBC Press in 2016. And the second one is Stepping Stones to Nowhere, the Aleutian Islands, Alaska, and American Military Strategy by Galen Roger Paris, published also by UBC Press but back in 2003. Combined, both these books give us a very good sense of the complicated nature of the Kiska liberation. Okay, so the Aleutian Island Chain is a series of volcanic islands historically belonging to the Aleut people, an ethnic indigenous group occupying both the Russian and American side of the North Pacific. The Aleutian Islands make up a long arc of islands, the westernmost belonging to Russia, 
but the majority of them belonging to the USA as part of the state of Alaska. The islands themselves hold very little importance. In 1942, there were small scattered populations of Aleuts, with most islands being entirely abandoned. There was a small American naval base at Dutch Harbor on Unalaska Island, and a small American airfield on Umak Island. Nonetheless, in 1942, the Japanese were to make this relatively obscure geographical stretch part of their war against the United States. Even prior to Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, the Japanese Imperial Navy had fairly extensive knowledge in regards to the Aleutian chain. They had built up quite a bit of intelligence as to the various specific islands, the weather, the geography, even the tidal flows and oceanic currents were familiar to Japanese naval planners. Yet, the Japanese had no idea about the state of the American defenses in the Aleutians. Nonetheless, an invasion of the Aleutians by the Imperial Japanese Navy was launched in conjunction with the Japanese attack at Midway in early June 1942. The Aleutian attack was originally meant to draw some of the American naval forces northwards and away from Midway. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, however, the Americans had cracked the Japanese naval code and were fully aware of the impending two-pronged naval assault. Most of the American fleet was focused on Midway, though a small task force was ordered to intercept the Japanese assault on the Aleutians. Bad weather set in, and the American task force was unable to find and stop the Japanese attack on the Aleutian chain. This Japanese attack started with bombing runs on Dutch Harbor, causing fairly significant damage. Two Japanese amphibious landings were then launched on the 6th and 7th of June, first at Kiska Island and then at Atu Island, respectively. The population of Kiska, when the Japanese stormed the shingle beaches of the tiny island, consisted of 10 American soldiers operating a weather station and their dog named Explosion. When the Japanese landed, they stormed the station, killing two Americans and capturing seven others. One soldier escaped and was able to evade Japanese search parties for weeks before turning himself into the Japanese, starving and hypothermic. Kiska formally fell on 7th of June, as did its neighboring island of Atu. Thus, by the 7th of June, 1942, American soil was occupied for the first time since the War of 1812. It's probably no surprise to our listeners that when news got out that the Japanese were now occupying American soil, the American public demanded immediate retaliation, though most Americans had to figure out where exactly this retaliation was going to take place, for most of them had never heard of the Aleutian Islands. Certainly, the idea that the hated Japanese were on any piece of American soil rankled the average American. However, more serious was the strategic concerns that the Japanese could use Kiska and Atu to launch amphibious and airborne raids against the West Coast. In fact, on Kiska, the Japanese had begun constructing mini-submarines, which could penetrate into the difficult-to-navigate harbors of the West Coast to utilize torpedoes or deliver mines. The threat was not just to America's West Coast, mind you, 
but also to Canada's. For Canada had declared war on Japan immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. By August of 1942, then, Canadian and American planes were conducting regular reconnaissance and bombing operations on the Japanese positions on the island, battering the Japanese garrison and seriously impeding the Japanese ability to turn their occupation into anything productive, though this was little known by American and Canadian commanders at the time. While this occurred, plans were already being drawn up for the retaking of the islands. However, Canadian military planners were soon distracted as they had to deal with the fallout from the disastrous Dieppe raid launched 19th August 1942, while the Americans were focused heavily on the invasion of North Africa. Thus, it wasn't until spring 1943 when serious steps started to be taken to recapture the islands. Folks, before we continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks per episode we publish, Patreon allows you to do that. You can access the Patreon page at www.patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cool Canadian History. We survive heavily on your donations, and every dollar is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. And we thank you all who have donated so far. I can't tell you how much uh, we appreciate it and how much it helps us out. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. Now back to our regular scheduled program. While the bulk of the Liberation Force was going to be American, American General John DeWitt, commanding Western Defense Command, effectively America's defensive forces along its west coast, asked if the Canadians would be interested in contributing manpower to the retaking of the Aleutian chain. Up to this point, the Canadian Army's contribution to the war effort had been a debacle, to say the least. The disaster in Hong Kong in 1941, the disaster at Dieppe in 1942, were the only major contributions the Canadian Army had made so far. Both were failures. Now, while the Canadian Chief of General Staff, Lieutenant General Kenneth Stewart, was eager to get Canadians into the Aleutian campaign, Prime Minister Mackenzie King delayed. King's hesitation was rooted in a concern that a Canadian attack on the Aleutians might hurt its ability to continue to reinforce a Canadian build-up in Britain. You see, Prime Minister King was eyeing the return to the continent and the dreams of a first Canadian army helping to spearhead the liberation of Northwest Europe. As well, King feared another military disaster, hurting his political position while seeing very little benefit from a victory in a relatively obscure part of the Pacific Ocean. But as the Canadian War Cabinet continued to discuss the potential for a Canadian contribution, the Americans went ahead and launched their liberation of Atu Island. On the 11th of May, 1943, a 15,000-strong American force landed. Tough fighting ensued. 
The 2,500-person Japanese garrison held out till virtually the last man was standing. And finally, on the 30th of May, the island was completely in American hands. All but 29 Japanese soldiers were killed. Despite the fact that the retaking of these islands was obviously going to be very difficult, two days before the Battle of Attu ended, Prime Minister Mackenzie King under pressure from his military advisors, authorized a Canadian contribution to the Aleutian campaign. What would end up making this contribution so unique, however, is that it was going to be composed almost entirely of men conscripted under the National Resources Mobilization Act. These weren't volunteers. These were the Canadian zombies. The National Resources Mobilization Act was passed back in June 1940 by Mackenzie King's government. It was rushed through the House of Commons in response to Germany's stunning victories in Northwest Europe in 1940 and effectively gave the Canadian government wide-reaching powers to mobilize and control the Canadian economy and the Canadian people in unprecedented ways. One of the more controversial features of the NRMA was conscription for home defense. You see, back in 1939, when Canada went to war initially, Mackenzie King had promised that there would be no conscription for the Canadian war effort. A promise made to mollify concerns in French Canada, coupled with Mackenzie King's deep fear of potential unrest within Quebec, Unrest that reared its ugly head back in 1917, when then-Prime Minister Robert Borden passed conscription. Yet, by 1940, with France collapsing and the U.S. not yet in the war, Canada was positioned as Britain's number two ally. The NRMA thus drafted men for home defense, effectively ensuring that Canada could protect itself with conscripted soldiers while its volunteers were sent overseas. However, by 1942, Canada's overseas contributions, both on land, at sea, and in the air, were demanding more and more people. Mackenzie King still was hesitant to simply impose conscription for overseas service and instead sought a mandate from the Canadian public. He held a national plebiscite in which nearly 66% of Canadians voted in favor of conscription for overseas service. Though it should be noted that while the rest of Canada voted heavily in favor of conscription for overseas service, 72% of Quebec voted against. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thus, in August 1942, the government passed legislation nullifying the Home Defense Clause, and only two months after Kiska had been occupied, Mackenzie King's government could now send men overseas, whether they volunteered or not. The nickname Zombie 
was a term applied to those conscripted, meant as an insult, referring to the brainless, unthinking nature of a conscripted soldier, as opposed to the free-thinking nature of a volunteer, i.e., the NRMA men couldn't think for themselves, so they were told what to do by the government, making them zombies. Many of these zombies had originally been stationed along the west coast, an obvious shoreline that needed protection in case the enemy crossed the Pacific. Thus, it was the zombies of Canadian Pacific Command who would take part in Operation Cottage. That was the name given to the liberation of Kiska Island. 5,000 Canadian soldiers from the newly constituted 13th Canadian Infantry Brigade, as well as 700 Canadians in the Canadian-American 1st Special Service Force, the precursor to the Green Berets, and subjects of the great film The Red Devil's Brigade, would make up the Canadian contribution. The American portion was approximately 30,000 soldiers. This was to be an operation of firsts, It was the first time Canadian troops had ever taken part in a field operation under U.S. command, and it was the first ever use of NRMA soldiers in a combat role. As well, for you trivia buffs out there, when the Canadian soldiers turned in their rather unsuitable equipment for better U.S. helmets, more appropriate Arctic clothing, and other American supplies, it was the first time in history that an equipment swap between the two nations' militaries for an active operation had ever occurred. On the 15th of August, 1943, the American force landed on the shores of the central section of the island, while one day later the Canadians landed on the northern section of the island. The 2,500-person Japanese garrison had only just recently abandoned the island. This, tragically, was unknown to the Americans or Canadians. To the average soldier arriving on Kiska, Every expectation was that the Japanese would fight to the last man, like they did on Atu. Tension was so high that as the Canadian and U.S. units got closer and closer to one another, they began opening fire on each other, thinking, of course, the other to be Japanese defenders. Mines and booby traps left by the Japanese, plus dense fog, rain, thick low brush, and overall terrible visibility contributed to escalating violence. Fortunately, it wasn't long before American and Canadian officers finally received word that the island was actually abandoned and that the two sides were in fact engaging one another. Tragically, four Canadians and 28 Americans lay dead. With the official recapturing of Kiska came an end to the Aleutian Islands campaign. Most NRMA men returned back to Canada, where many were eventually shipped off to Europe to reinforce 1st Canadian Army in its liberation of Northwest Europe. The Japanese never again came remotely close to the Aleutian Islands or any part of North American territory. While all accounts of the Canadian role in the operation were exceedingly positive, the 13th Brigade's war diarist summed up the relief at the realization that Kiska was undefended when he wrote that every hill, more especially every ridge, was full of Jap positions. This would have been a terrific fight. The zombie invasion of Kiska was successful. 
American territory was liberated. The Canadian Army had supported its allies, and the NRMA men, by all accounts, had performed well in very difficult circumstances. Though despite there being no enemy on the island, this tragically was not a bloodless victory. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.